Welcome to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2007. Today's episode is entitled, Biblical Worldview of Work. This is the 11th part of a 12-part worldview study titled, Developing a Worldview that Works. The full study is available online at strategieswork.com. In this episode, Dr. Chester discusses the question, Does God care about our work, or is it just a tool for making money? You will look at a biblical perspective on what you spend most of your life doing, work. Okay, today we want to talk about does your work count to God or a biblical worldview of work? What do you spend most of your life doing? Most of us spend our life working. (laughs) Well, that's that's reality. We we spend, I mean, most of us at least spend 40 hours a week working. And and, I mean, who's got a 40-hour week job? I mean, my goodness, I don't. My wife accuses me of being a workaholic. Well, well, she works more than 40 hours a week, too. You know, that's just the nature of the beast that we're in. And we're getting into a 24-7 society. You know, where now, you, you basically, work goes on all week long. Right. And, because you know, when I was growing up, and Paul and some of the others were growing up, what happened on Sunday? Yeah. Everything stopped. Some of you younger people probably don't know about this, but back in the 60s, you know, nobody was open on Sunday except the local cafeteria. Basically, in our community, it was just a few places where you could get something to eat. And it turns out the guy that owned the, owned the cafeteria went to the church, so he had the blessing of the pastor to be open. So, but otherwise, everybody else was closed, and that's the way it was. But now we're in a 24-7. Uh, it's amazing to me as I work with my clients, um, I find myself getting emails from them at midnight, and then I find myself responding to their emails. Because <laughs> that's just we're just into this mode of work, work, work. Okay, well, so... My question is, many Christians do not believe that there's any redeeming value to work other than to make money. If we were to poll people that walked into the church today and say, is there any redeeming value to work other than making money, what do you think we'd hear? A lot of people, it's all about money. The only reason they work is money. You know, it's interesting, I, in talking to people, interviewing people, which I do on a regular basis, a question I ask is, okay, if money's not an object, you could do anything you want to do, you could live wherever you want to live, you know, where would you live and what would you do? I have never, well, maybe with one or two exceptions, almost universally, ever, no one just says that they would do what they're doing. There are a few exceptions, but the vast majority of people, in fact, I did just Friday at lunch, and I asked this question to this guy, and he said, oh, I never thought about that. And he thought for a minute and says, here's what I do, and he laid out this plan, and it's not what he's doing. And that's the typical scenario. Most of us are not doing what's really in our heart. Because, and part of the reason is we're ma- working mainly for money. Money is the reason we get up on Monday morning to go to work. Now, let me suggest that your work is very important to God. And let me just go back to the creation mandate. We've talked about this for, so, before, so we won't dwell on this. But this text tells us that God made us to rule his creation. And to rule his creation, we're supposed to do it by, in two ways. Increasing the number and subduing. I like to think of this as multiplying and mastery. That's what he's called us to do, is to take dominion over this planet. So we have a divinely ordained, commissioned activity that we're supposed to engage in. We call it work. And this is the game that we're in. Many Christians believe that work is a curse. What do you think? Is work a curse? Okay, That's a very common argument that If you talk to enough Christians, you will hear this argument, and you'll hear it more than once. Many people believe this. In fact, 
I think many of the people, particularly if you tend to be in a church context and you're in a church that really is big on missions, you know, you're going to hear this as well. In fact, it's interesting, uh, in, in we, the business council here does a lot of personal counseling with people in the church. You can request an individual audience, and we will meet with you and pray with you and counsel with you about your business, about your work. And so we've done that with a, numerous people that you would recognize as leaders, and frequently we hear this theme. They believe deep down that work is a curse. However, the creation mandate in Genesis 1 tells us that we're here to rule, and that precedes Genesis 3, which is where we have the curse. The Bible does not rescind the creation mandate after the fall of man. The Bible does not rescind the creation mandate after the fall of man. It doesn't even modify it. It's more challenging. That's exactly right. What sin does is make work more difficult. That's what it's done. It does not change why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. It just challenges us a little more deeply. The sad reality is that most Christians in America today are partial dualists. Remember we talked about partial dualism last week? These uh, five circles represent the five spheres of authority where God's delegated authority. And you notice I've got the church in the middle because the church should be the pillar and ground of truth. It should be articulating the philosophy, values, and principles that you incorporate into every sphere of life. So as an individual or your family, your work life, your government life, everything in life falls into those spheres, and the church should be telling us biblically how we go about living, how, what is valuable to God, what our priorities should be. And you see these arrows here. Most Christians think the church is relevant to the individual and relevant to the family. But there's no arrow to work or government because most of us don't believe that God really cares that much about these fears. These are the tangible reality, physical reality, and God doesn't care so much about that. God cares about the spiritual, and the spiritual happens in the church and the family and the individual. That's how most people think. Now, I hope you understand, I don't believe that is biblical. I think that we should have arrows here and arrows here saying the church should be relevant to every sphere of life. That's the full, the holistic view of reality. Let me just point out to you that I'm not the only one that thinks this. Those of you that study church history, you know who Martin Luther is, or Martin Luther was. Martin Luther was a great man of God that struggled with what it was to really walk with God and what it meant to walk with God, and he uncovered what he thought was a divine truth, and that is work is a divine calling. This article in Christianity Today quotes what Martin Luther had to say about work. He said this, The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. What he's saying is whatever you're doing, if you're doing it because you have a conviction that God has called you to do it, that is faith. And that's, that's the measure against which your work will be measured, as whether or not you're doing what you're called to do. Now, researchers have gone out there and tried to figure out some interesting things. And one of the things they figured out is how many people are doing work they are really called to do. And what, the way they measure this is they ask people, are you really doing every day, in the majority of your day, what you really love to do, what you really enjoy doing? 
Now, what kind of stats do you think they came up with? What percent of the population out there is really doing what they'd love to do the majority of the day? What do you think that would be? 5%? 2? How many? Anybody else? 7. The stats are 17%. 17% of the workforce claims to be doing, on a regular basis throughout the day, things they really enjoy doing, which means 83% of the people are doing things they don't enjoy doing. What drives these 83% are the people to do things they don't want to do. Money. money. It's all about money. That's, be that's become the God. So now you're worshiping an idol. Yeah, it doesn't lead you down a good road. You've got to realize money is not the driving indicator of anything. Okay, what's the driving indicator is obedience to God. Are you doing what God created you to do? If work is a divine calling, if it's important to God, God values it, He created us to work, and He has a place for each one of us to work, then work is a divinely ordained activity, and how should we go about this work? With great integrity. Look at these verses here. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I know that's how Bob Buffington worked. There's no doubt in my mind. And that's why he had the favor he had. And look on further down in Colossians 3. Slaves obey. Now remember, slaves are the workers. Okay? So you could say employees obey your employers in everything, and do it not only with their eye, when their eye is on you, uh -huh. okay, not only when their eye is on you, okay, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Is that not an amazing statement? We think our employer is Joe or Fred or whoever. No, your employer is God. Joe or Fred or whoever you're reporting to is just an agent of God. You know, there's always boundaries here. You know, we're, we're called to work. We're called to have families. We're called to be involved in our community. We're called to be involved with our churches. That takes time. All those things take time. So you have to have some balance and some boundaries in place. And, yeah, there are some employers out there today that are egregious in their expectations. Uh, they want they they don't want to give you all the tools, and they want your they want a pound of flesh out of you. Absolutely, I was talking to a guy Friday about that very scenario, and we'll talk about dealing with that a little bit later. So we have, there's a divinely ordained work that work ethic. How many of you have heard uh, the, or have seen people have said, "I won't hire Christians"? Yeah. Yep. Well, there are people out there like that. In fact, there was a t period of time in my life that I had that perspective too, because I had such bad experience with Christians. Now, what was, what was my experience? This right here. They did not have a good work ethic. In fact, there was an entitlement mentality. I had one guy one time that I had, to, I, had to, I had to let him go, and his attitude was, you can't let me go. I said, why? He said, well, I'm a brother. Well, I'm sorry. You, you can't do the job. And so as, as a steward of my company, I had no choice but to let him go, but he, he just felt like he, he was entitled to a job because he was a Christian, and I was a Christian. So we've got to get it that God values work, and he values a good work ethic. How about work assignments? Has God created you for specific work assignments? Specific work assignments. There are a lot, there are a lot of Christians that believe that, you know, God doesn't really care that much about work, and so you have a lot of freedom. You can go pick whatever you want to do. God's really not into that. That's not his thing. God's into spiritual reality. He's really not into physical reality. So what do you believe? Has God created specific work assignments or not? You think so? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe it's true of you individually? That God has created works for you to do. 
Now, when you read that, I know what you do because I do the same thing. I read that and I think of spiritual stuff. I don't think of, well, God has assigned to me this particular project that I'm doing that I don't particularly like because I don't like the people. Okay? And we all have those kinds of things. Now, you hear, I enjoy my work, but there are times circumstances are such that I don't enjoy my work because of the circumstances, because of the people or the circumstances of the situation. Well, guess what? God's ordained that. And he's prepared me and put me there. and He wants me to do what Daniel did, sing in the lion's den. The context is, is, about, is about moving out of, of becoming a pagan to becoming a Christian. Ephesians 2.8, 2, you know, it talks about being, uh, we're not saved by our works, but by our faith. And so here, because now we're saved, we've been saved to do good works. And those works are not just happening here at church, or not just happening at home. They happen in all of life. And so God is apparently interested enough to ordain things for us to do, give us specific assignments. Now look at this text, Psalm 139. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. This word wonderfully made, the, the Hebrew word is to distinguish. Each one is distinguished. Each one is made specifically to do what it is God's created you to do. You have, you've been born at the certain time you need to be born. You, are, you were given a certain parents. You're getting certain personalities, certain aptitudes, certain training, certain opportunities, everything. All these things that make things happen in life, boom, God's in the middle of that. Have you ever looked at just have you looked at your life and seen something that you say, "Wow, how did this happen?" Anybody had that experience? Yeah, we've all had that experience where things just happen and you you can't explain it. It just happened. And is that just luck? Just random chance? No, it's the hand of God at work because He made you very specific. He distinguished you. Isn't that cool to know that you are a distinguished person? Because God set you apart and made you just the way he wanted to make you. Now, here's something even more amazing. Are there, are there random events in God's creation? Flipping a coin, is that random? Is that a random event? I mean, we kind of think of it as a random event. Well, look what, look what the Proverbs say. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's kind of a mind-blower that what I think is a random event, really God's into that. There's no randomness. Randomness happens to us as human, from our perspective as human beings because we don't understand all that God understands. We don't see all that God sees. And God's chosen us, chosen not to tell us everything. Remember in Acts 1 where the disciples were all lathered up, Jesus had been raised from the dead, and they think, now you're going to deliver us from this Roman tyranny and you're going to reestablish the kingdom of God here on earth. And he, Jesus says to them what? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set for that, but here's your assignment. And he gives them their assignment. See, he doesn't tell us what we don't need to know. He tells us what we need to know to do what we're called to do. That's the kind of God we have. So he's very purposeful, very intentional. So when the lot is cast in the lap, it's every decision is from the Lord. There were times when our children were growing up that they, there would be a conflict. And I couldn't figure out who was telling the truth. So I knew this verse. So I pulled out a coin. Flipped the coin. And made the decision. And I taught him. I said, look, I don't know what's going on here. But you know something? God's into what we think is even random. God's into it. Is there anything that God's not into? 
Okay, this, let me, let's talk about the key to finding your destiny, and that is C4. And we're going to give you what C4 is, and get, I want to illustrate C4 to you from Scripture. I, I'm contending to you, this is the biblical principle for hiring anybody to do anything. If you want to hire somebody to work for you, you need to look for C4. You want to hire an attorney, look for a C4. You want to hire an accountant, look for C4. You want to, you want to go, um, you want to hire a babysitter, look for C4. Now here's what C4 is. First of all, calling. Calling is the cry of the heart. You want to look for passion. You ever tried to work with somebody who had no passion to do what they do? It's not very much fun, is it? There's no passion, there's no energy, there's no drive, there's no initiative, nothing. You gotta look for, you gotta look for passion. Second thing is character which is biblical philosophy, values, and principles. This is the only thing that's going to get blessed. Sin doesn't work. It's as simple as that. Sin doesn't work. And so anything that doesn't line up with biblical worldview, it's going to be sin. And it's going to create conflict, and it's going to create difficulty. Then you have capability. This is your God-given skill and ability. Now, most people, when you go to hire somebody, what's the first thing you do? You sit, well, you sit down and write out a job description of some sort, and you focus on... The capability. What skill sets do I want? That's where it starts. And you miss these other two components. And the last component is really up to you if you're the employer. It's a commissioning, the external validation by authority figures that somebody has called, been called to do something. How many of you know somebody that you can look at them and you can say, they're out of place. They ought to be over here doing this. How many of you know people like that? You probably all know people like that. Because the way, God, way it works is that God has made it so we have to be interdependent. Case in point, who in here can see everybody in this room? Can anybody see everybody in this room? I can't see myself. And that's true of you too. You can see everybody in this room except yourself. So that's a picture of how you need others to tell you about yourself and about how God has made you to work. So authority figures are there to help us discern the will of God and to call us into our destiny. This is what parents do. This is what teachers do. This is what employers do. This is what pastors should be doing, is commissioning people to their God-ordained purpose. So this is what you want to look for in, in hiring anybody to do anything. This is what you want to look for in finding your work, the work that God has ordained you to do. Now, where do you find... Let me go through this a little bit more. Didn't know, let me... I mean, where do you find this in Scripture? This isn't just my idea. Think about when God wanted to build the tabernacle, and he's got to hire a workforce to do it. What principle did he use to hire the people? Look at all that he said. Yeah, he starts out talking about the Lord has chosen Bezael and her. Okay, basically start out with chosen. This is character. And he said, he has filled him with the Spirit of God. There's character. And skill and ability, knowledge, and all kinds of crafts, that's capability. Okay. And then down here, he says that he's commissioned them to do it just as he's commanded. That's the commissioning. So you see here in this text, where, which outlines how God wants the tabernacle to be built and who's supposed to build it, he used the C4 principle to qualify the workers. Now, let me elaborate on the calling here. You see this down here at the bottom where it has the word willing? Okay, the context is he's talking about and who was willing to come and do the work. That word willing is very weak in the English. In the Hebrew, it's the word that means heart. 
It implies passion, fervency, hunger, and desire to do something. So it's a very weak English translation, but you need to understand there is a very, very real sense of passion that God was looking for in these workers. So this, this is the, this is probably one of the clearest texts that shows you the C4 principle. But there are other texts. For example, here in Psalm 78, you have C4 is the principle to choose somebody to do leadership and administration. And then Exodus 35, which is the one we just looked at, this is construction, food distribution, Acts 6, this is, they use the C4 principle to hire people to do food distribution. Exodus 18, it was used to, uh, to, to designate judges. Remember when Moses was supposed to judge the people and he had too many and his father-in-law said, you need to break it down. And the C4 principle pops up there. And finally, the, in creative work, this is where, where, uh, where David was chosen to be the harpist for Saul. C4 was the principle that was used to identify David as the proper person to do the job. So C4 is a principle that's throughout Scripture as the basis for hiring workers. Now, what does C4 look like at work? What does C4 look like at work? Well, let me just give you an example. We're going to take a look at the book of Titus, and we're going to look at what Paul told Titus about how we should work. So let's look a little bit at the context. And you don't need to look it up because I'm going to show you the verses up here in a second. First of all, the book is written to Titus, Paul's spiritual son. And it says this, To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Titus was in Crete completing the work that Paul had commissioned him to do. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, apparently somewhere in Paul's journey, he made a trip to Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's, uh, it's between um, Palestine and Italy and Asia. It's kind of in that little triangle there. Uh, it's a small island. It's not all that big, but it's a very decadent place. And so Paul went there to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. He had to leave early, and so he leaves Titus there with instructions, and he sends this letter back to Titus to clarify exactly what he's supposed to do. So here's some of the key teaching that Paul gave in this book of Titus. First of all, he says, the thing you need to understand, Titus, is that what this is all about is knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. That's the very first verse of the book, is that I'm trying to impart to you knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Now, why is that important? It's important because in Crete, it's a society of lies and deception. That's the culture there, lies and deception. So now we've got to make it clear it's the knowledge of truth that's going to bring you on the path to godliness. Now he's using different words than we use. We talk about biblical worldview. He's talking about knowledge of the truth. It's the same thing. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. That's chapter 2, verse 1. He's again stressing this whole book is about laying out truth so you will know how to live. And then he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good. That's the first verse of chapter 3. So there's three chapters, and here's the first verse of each of those chapters, and you can see it's all about truth. And truth leading to action. Now, what drives your actions every day? It's your worldview. Whatever your worldview is defines how you see truth and reality. It defines how you live. And so he's saying, we've got to give you the right worldview so you can live properly. And that's the key to this book. Now, the Cretan culture was very decadent. 
Notice what it says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Every one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's the culture. Liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, you look at that and you probably don't make a connection to our, to our times, but there was a survey done recently. The question was, what percent of the people habitually lie? Does anybody remember that? What percent? They went out, and I don't know how they did this. This always confused me. How can you go out and get people to tell you the truth about lying? I don't know how you do that. But supposedly, they go out there, and these people, you know, tell them the truth about how much they lie. And the question is, how much do you habitually lie at work? And the percentage was 93% said they habitually lied at work. Now, that's pretty phenomenal. So do you think we're always liars? I think this... You know, if you look, if you view the always, not literally, but with a little hyperbole, yeah, I think you'd say we're always liars. Okay? We, we, well, there's a consistent pattern of lying going on in our society. Evil brutes. Now, what's that like? Well, that's animals. Animals are untamed, out of control, they're, they're disorganized, and they're destructive. Do we have that going on in our society? Yeah. We got a lot of that going on. Lazy gluttons, no work ethic. Now, those of you that, that are working in a, work, a workplace around a lot of people, what percent of the people that you work around are really efficient at what they do? Very few. Very few are really efficient. You could go back to the stat of, you know, what percent of the people really enjoy what they do, and the stat is 17%. That's probably not far off from those that are really good at what they do. Probably about, you know, one, one in five workers is probably pretty good it, it has a pretty good work ethic. So you could say, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of lazy gluttons in our society with no worth at, worth at work ethic. So here in the book of Titus, we read that and we kind of disconnect, but the reality, he's describing us. He's describing the way we are in our culture. So it's a very decadent culture he's writing about. The Cretan culture was very humanistic, very relativistic. Notice what it says here. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. What percent of the American population claims that they, they, have some, they believe in God and have some sense of God? Like 90%. I mean, it's huge. The vast majority. The atheists are in a huge minority. And yet, how do we live? We've got homosexuality is becoming rampant. We've got abortion. Cohabitation is the, is the norm. We're throwing off all restraint. See, we claim to know God, but we're denying the reality of that in our actions. You see, Paul is writing to us. Paul is writing to us. It just happens to be in the form of the book of Titus that it's a setting 2,000 years ago, but it's still... It's the same scenario all over again. There's nothing that's really changed. Sin is still sin. Now, here's Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to focus on verses 9 and 10 here. See, and I don't have time to read the rest of it, so let me just set the context by saying, notice it starts out in Titus 2.1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is, this, is what, this is what it's all about. I've got to give you truth. Apostles' doctrine. Remember, the first thing in that list of four things that the early church started doing, first thing is apostles' doctrine. So he said, I'm going to give you sound doctrine so you'll have a basis, a biblical worldview from which to live your life. Now, we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10. It says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. 
to try to please them, not to talk back to them and to not steal from them, but so that they can be faithfully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That's Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Now let's look at some of these details. Look at the word slave. This word slave meant workers because in the Roman culture, the people that did the work were the slaves. Citizens did not work. That was their environment. They did not value work. They didn't understand the creation mandate, so they spent their time and pleasure. Seeking pleasure, talking philosophy, going up to Starbucks. That's what they did. The slaves did the work. So convert the word slave and say worker. Teach workers. Because that's what he's talking to. He's talking to the workers to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them. This word to please is the Greek word ine, okay, which means to be, to exist, to happen, to be present. The implication is show up in every regard, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. How many of you know people that when they go to work, they don't really show up? They're physically there, but they're mentally not there. They're emotionally not there. You're checked out. We have a term. It's called out to lunch. That's the term. They're out to lunch. They're not really there. Well, he's saying the first element in being a great worker is to show up, to be present. So that's, that's step one. Step two, you want to be a great worker? Then not to talk back to them. Now look at this word, Greek word here. This Greek word means to speak against, contradict, decline to obey. Okay? Now, we know Jesus told us this, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever you say is reflecting what's going on in your heart. So what he's saying here is you, if you're not going to talk back, that means you're showing up with the right heart attitude. Because if you open the wrong heart, heart attitude, it's going to come out of your mouth. Some way, somehow, it's going to come out. So he's saying show up with the right heart, and the evidence of that is you use your tongue properly. Okay? So first element is show up in every way, and then show up with the right heart. And the third element is this. Not to steal from them. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, I never stole anything. Well, may I suggest that you probably have. We've all stole. We steal time. We steal lots of things. But look at this word here. This word here means to set apart, separate, divide, to set apart for yourself. It means to embezzle. It means to withdraw, covet covertly. And we do that in lots of ways. It's all about our personal agendas. What he's saying here is when you come to work, you lay aside your personal agenda. You come to work to serve the organization. Now, that's huge. In fact, I find that very, very rare for a person to come and subordinate their personal agenda for the good of the whole. But that's, that's what we're called to do. Workers are called to put the organization ahead of their own personal interest. So you have those three characteristics. Show up, show up with the right heart, subordinate your own personal agenda to the good of the whole. Now, what happens when, when that is the reality? Well, you become trusted. Would you trust somebody like that? If somebody was showing up, they got the right heart attitude as demonstrated by the right use of the tongue, and they've subordinated their interest to the good of the whole, would you trust that person? I would. I trust that person. Why do you not trust people? Because, because, well, because one of those three characteristics isn't met. You know, you trust somebody that's there but not there? Eh, I don't think so. You trust somebody that's going to give you a lot of pushback and, 
you know, a lot of conflict. No, not going to do that. You trust somebody that's their personal agenda trumps the agenda of the organization? No, you don't trust them. No, you've you got to have all three of those components in place to be trusted. And so when you do that, you become a go-to person. You know, we talk about in football, the term is a go-to receiver. Now, why is that? Why are they a go-to receiver? Because they, they, they get it done. They flat get it done. You know, you can throw the ball, and some way or another, they're going to make the catch. That's what a go-to receiver is. We need to be go-to workers. You throw us the ball, we're going to get it done. We're going to be there. We're going to be there with right heart, and we're going to be there, subordinate our interests to the good of the whole. We're going to be working for the good of the organization. Now, what's interesting here is the connection that he makes to, to the apostles' doctrine, so that in every way you will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Whoa, what's my work got to do with the teaching about Christ? Well, it is reflecting the person you say is your God. That's what your work is doing. Your work reflects on your God. And so there is a direct connection that people make. They don't even have to think about it between how you work and who you worship. Now that's, you got to let that sink in because that's a serious thing. Because suddenly my work is real important. It's real important. And what's even more powerful is this, is this last phrase. Okay? Because so that you, you know, in every way you make, your, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now that word attractive is the word cosmeo. Is anybody here a derivative of cosmeo? Cosmetics. Cosmetics. What you're doing is you are putting lipstick on God when you're a great worker. You're making God look good. Wow, that puts work in a different context, doesn't it? Now think about this. It's, true. it's very true. If you want favor and you want, you want people to know the God that you know, be a great worker. Because now that draws them to you. You, you. you are modeling for them what it is to walk with this God that I profess. So this, this is the way we evangelize. This is the greatest way to evangelize. I was in a meeting one time. And um, with Hugh Cunningham, uh, and this was a marketplace meeting several years ago. And this is, you know, the marketplace movement, the current marketplace movement. That's, you know, it's the rage, it's kind of the rage right now. It, it's it's kind of a funny movement in several ways. One, it's my goodness, it's not really new, because Paul's talking about the marketplace two thousand years ago. But secondly, there's there's some real misunderstanding about it. Here was this guy speaking, and this guy's pretty prominent in Christian circles. I mean, if I told you his name, you'd probably recognize who he is. And he's standing up to sharing about evangelism. And he's saying, there's nothing wrong for you to stop work, whatever you're doing, and turn around in your cubicle and give somebody a, a, a track and share the gospel with them right there in the middle of the day. Man, everything within me is wanting to raise my hand. And Hugh is holding my hand down. There's a little tug of war going on there. I want to shoot my hand straight up and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about being a good steward? What about Titus 2, 9 and 10? It tells us the way... The way we make God look good is we're great workers. It doesn't say anything about stopping and using the employer's time that he's paying me to serve him to go and share a gospel track with somebody. You see the, see the conflict there? There's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel with somebody. You want to share the gospel with somebody. The question is, how do you do it? And what Titus is telling me, or what Paul's saying in Titus is, you want to do a good job making God look good? Be a great worker. Do a great job. Be a go-to person. When you're there, work for, you know, be there, be fully there, 
Be fully there with the right heart and be working for the good of the organization, not your personal agenda. I think I shared with you the article about the pastor that, uh, that believes the chief priority today is evangelism. And I wrote an article on that and published that here a couple of months ago. I said a couple of months, probably been six months ago. And it was real interesting because I talked about, well, would you consider this scenario, consider a physician that, you know, has, has adopted this philosophy and all he wants to do is share the gospel. So he goes through medical school and just gets by. He goes into practice and just gets by. And now he's going to work on you. And you're in this operating room. You're, those of you that have been in an operating room that have not been put to sleep immediately, you know it's a very cold room. I remember I, I had a last surgery one time, and I remember thinking, this is a cold place. And he, he walks in, and he's got a fistful of tracks in his, his pocket, and his only concern are the nine or ten people in that room and how he's going to share the gospel with you, with them. You're sitting over there on the table. He's fixing to work on you, and you're saying, would you please focus on me? That's what you're saying. There's everybody in this room would feel that way. See, and that's what he should do. You want some influence with those other nine people? Do a great job of surgery. That's how it works. That's God's system. Do a great job at whatever you do, and you become, you make God attractive to others. So what is the value of work? Let's talk about several key, key points of the value of work. First of all, it's an obedience to the creation mandate. That in and of itself ought to be sufficient. God made work as a valuable commodity. He, he called us to do it. He created us to do it. That makes work valuable. But you also have work as a tool for maturity. Uh, I've seen this over and over again. You see this in, uh, in Luke 19, the, the parable of the minus. Remember, Jesus gave the minus to all the four, four servants. He comes back to hold them accountable. And the first one says, I took your one and turned it into ten. And what did Jesus say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little Okay, take charge of 10 cities. I mean, that, that's a big promotion, isn't it? But what happens with work, God, God intends work to mature us and to qualify us for more responsibility in his kingdom. I personally have seen that with my wife. When she went to work, she went on a, a process of maturing that I'm not sure she could have gotten continuing as a homemaker. The work environment provided a maturity vehicle for her. The next thing is the means for provision. And at the end of the book of Titus, we have this statement. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for their daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. In other words, work is a vehicle by which God provides for us. Now, most of us get focused on this. And that's what drives us. We've forgotten about these other things. And finally, work is an evangelism tool. It's a great evangelism tool if you're a great worker. Great workers have influence. My wife at the school she's in, has incredible influence. Why? Because she's a great worker. Because she shows up, she shows up with the right heart, and she works for the good of the organization. And that's opened the door for her to be a very influential person in that environment. All right, working with non-believers. This is where the conflict comes in. And you, you could have labeled this working with anybody, but I specifically labeled non-believers because that's most likely what's going to happen. But if you're in a work situation where you're being abused, You've been asked to do things that are not lining up with Scripture. You know, that's a difficult scenario. And you've got to know this. The basic principle is this. Nobody's going to do well in the workplace, no matter what they profess, without lining up to some degree with a biblical worldview. Sin doesn't work. If you're working for an employer who habitually lies, that will not stand. You know, if you're working for a company that goes out and robs banks, they will get caught. It's just a matter of timing. 
So you've got to know that the only success that you have in the world at all is to the degree that you line up with a biblical worldview. Now, we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we can see what do you do in the case of unequal yoking, which is where you have C4 to do a job, but what happens is, or you perceive you have C4, your employer is not properly commissioning you, which is what you're talking about and what you're talking about. Whenever your, your employer is not facilitating you to do what God's created you to do, they, ha they have not commissioned you, which means you only have probably C3 to do that job. And that's the rub you're getting. So you've got, you got to realize that's the scenario I'm in, and you've got to say, okay, what's the biblical principle? 1 Corinthians 7 gives us a principle. There it talks about slaves that come to know Christ. And Paul says, okay, if you're a slave when you came to know Christ, then if you can get free, get free. But if you can't get free, then you stay there until God provides a way for you to get free. Okay, That's the general principle. Now, there could be some exceptions. You might have some extreme abuse, an extreme situation where you just got to get out of there to protect your life. That, that may be a scenario. But as a general maxim, a maxim is a general principle. I think 1 Corinthians 7 gives us a principle. When you find yourself in a situation where you can't have C4 to do it, okay, and it's the problem is with your employer. They, can't, they won't commission you for whatever reason. You need to be asking the Lord for a way out to find a place where you can have C4 and do what you're called to do. Okay, so that, that would be my counsel to you. Okay, let's pull this together real quickly. C4 is a tool to help all of us discern our destiny. That's what it is. It's a God-given tool. It's, it's the pattern that God uses to identify workers to do various tasks in Scripture. A biblical work, work ethic has three key components. They are, what's the first one? Titus 2, 9 and 10. Show up. You've got to show up in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally. You've got to be there, totally be there. What's the next one? You need to be there with the right heart. Remember, the tongue is the evidence. It's the sign of what's in the heart. You've got to be there with the right heart attitude. And what's the third one? No personal agenda. You're there working for the good of the whole. The organization's good trumps your personal agenda. Okay, and as a result of that, okay, you become a go-to worker, a world-class worker. You know, what do you build organizations on? Go-to workers. That's what you want. You want to be that. You want to be somebody that your employer can look at and say, I can build with you. That's what you want. And now you're What's that done to the gospel of Christ? Wow, you've just become a sweet fragrance in that company. You have put lipstick on God. God looks good because you have done a great job. And finally, there's nothing more important than sharing the gospel of Christ by being a great worker. That will, that will, be, that will bring power to people's lives like hardly anything else will.